Well, I'll ask you to open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, being Resurrection Sunday, the day that we celebrate the remembrance and the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ's resurrection, we are going to be looking at resurrection truth. Not resurrection falsehoods, not resurrection myths, not resurrection untruths, but resurrection truth. The resurrection is the most anticipated moment for the church and for our redemption. You may not think of it as that. Maybe you haven't thought about it like that in the past, but it is the most anticipated event in our entire redemption. It is the moment that you and I as Christians look forward to. It is the moment and the essential doctrine of the gospel. In other words, there is no other part that is as essential as the fact of the resurrection. Christ's death is essential for our salvation, but without the resurrection, Christ's death means nothing. It means just another man died a a death, an undeserved death. An innocent man died an undeserved death, but without the resurrection, it's meaningless. It will actually happen for you and for me. And it has as its theme you and I coming to life again. And that is the theme of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. However, sadly, many who do not have faith in Christ and who do not believe in the gospel, sadly, Even some professing Christians live as if the resurrection will not happen. Shockingly enough, as that sounds, many non-Christians believe in reincarnation. The reality that you simply start life all over again as some other different earthly entity. Now, I don't know what could conjure up less hope than that especially in the world in which we live. Who wants to return to this? Still others believe that all people simply will be annihilated upon death, that we will just turn into nothingness, that we, as even the Scriptures say, dust turns to dust, that none of that will come back to anything. We just turn into nothingness once we die. And yet still others believe only in the life of the soul after death. Where that soul goes is debatable between many people upon our earth. What people might call soul sleep is what they might say happens. And within the Corinthian church, there was the gamut of all of these ideas, all of these ideologies, even though They were, for the most part, those who professed in believing the gospel. They were, for the most part, Christian people. And therefore, like many even in the evangelical church of our day, in which we live, in which we interact with people who claim to be Christians, those in the Corinthian church had dragged into the church and into their understanding of the church this thinking, all the 
stuff from their unsaved lives they had dragged into the church with them. And many of the Corinthians had brought into the church and into their understanding of resurrection doctrine the thinking and belief that the dead don't physically rise to an eternal destination. The Apostle Paul directly confronts this idea beginning in verse 12. And he says, how is it, if we preach Christ, how is it that some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? He's speaking about physical resurrection. He's speaking about the reality of the bodily resurrection of all people. In other words, this statement in verse 12 sums up what Paul has argued for in the first 11 verses. If you believe the true gospel, he is saying in verses 1 to 11, then how can you not believe in the bodily resurrection of all people. In fact, if you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, then how can you live in fear of anything as a person who believes in Jesus Christ? How can you live in fear and anxiety and worry about anything on this earth? Because in the resurrection, get this, Christ destroys the last enemy, which is death. Verse 26 Paul says the last enemy that will be abolished is death. Therefore, resurrection is part and parcel to the gospel. And most importantly, since as Christians we already believe the gospel, then you already believe in bodily resurrection. If you believe the gospel, then part and parcel to the gospel, the reality of the resurrection is there, and bodily resurrection is the reality of the resurrection altogether. You say, well, why can you say this? Well, because Paul lists several reasons in verses 12 through 19. And then he gives the most important reason beginning in verse 20 through 28. Let me this morning just quickly remind us of all of the reasons why resurrection is so important. And then I want to focus our attention on the most important reason, which is verses 20 through 28. Paul lists these reasons by using negative consequences. In other words, he gives us this list in the form of negative realities if we don't believe the resurrection happened. And he says, if there is no resurrection, then it's worthless to preach the gospel at all. If there is no resurrection, then why in the world would we ever go around telling people about Jesus Christ at all? You notice verses 13 and 14, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. Paul is simply saying that the preaching of the gospel is what we do as Christians. This is who we are. This is what we do. This is our task. This is why we've been left here. This is why we are on this earth. The truth of the resurrection is essential to the true gospel. But if the resurrection is not true at all, then all we preach are empty words to people. All we preach is a phantom, a myth, worthless. Well, that's the first thing. If the resurrection isn't true, then 
preaching the gospel is just worthless. And he says, secondly, if the resurrection isn't true, then it's worthless to have any kind of faith. It's worthless to have any kind of faith. He says, your faith also is in vain, verse 14. In other words, faith is only as good as the object to which it believes. Faith to believe in something that cannot produce whatever it is you believe it can produce is worthless faith. That's the idea. So if there is no resurrection, then upon what or upon whom is our faith placed? If there is no resurrection, what in the world are we believing for? That's the idea. Faith believes in the unseen. If there is no unseen, then faith is worthless. Then he gives a third negative consequence. If there is no resurrection, then we are actually liars about God as we preach the gospel. Notice verse 15. Moreover, he says, on top of that, if those first two aren't bad enough, he says, moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God. Why? Because we witness against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if, in fact, the dead are not raised. In other words, to not believe in the resurrection is to not believe in the gospel. And yet, as Christians, we preach the gospel that includes the resurrection. But if there is no resurrection, then we are lying to people. We are telling them lies about God, the one who has the power to save We tell them of the resurrection when in fact there is no resurrection if in fact Christ hasn't been read and therefore in doing so we lie about God. We are actually not true witnesses of the gospel. We are actually, if there is no resurrection, we are false witnesses. We are false witnesses about the gospel and we are false witnesses about the very character and nature of God. Number four, Paul says, if there are no resurrection, not only is any kind of faith worthless, but it is actually dead faith. Verse 16 and first part of 17, he says, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. In other words, if there is nothing being produced by the object of our faith, then the faith we claim is actually a faith that is not saving us at all. And Ephesians 2.8 is worthless, right? We are saved by grace through faith. If there is no resurrection, then there is no faith. Our faith is worthless. It is a dead faith. And yet as Christians, we preach a resurrection. We are here this day to say Christ is alive and we believe it. But if there is no resurrection, then our faith is producing nothing. Because the object of our faith is producing nothing. We are simply and sadly still unsaved. And if unsaved, then reason number five is our sins are still ours to bear before the eternal judge. You are, Paul says, verse 17, still in your sins. No resurrection means no satisfactory payment for us. No payment for our sins means that we still own them. No payment for our sins means that they haven't been moved off of our eternal debt column. 
they're still ours, and therefore there is no forgiveness of sin if there is no resurrection, and where there is no forgiveness of sin, there is only judgment for sin. And if that is so, there is no resurrection that our only future end is to be eternally condemned. Verse 18, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. There's no resurrection. The only hope, the only hopeful reality that we have when we die is not to come alive into eternal bliss with Christ, but come into eternal punishment. And that's no hope at all. No hope of eternal sinlessness. All who have died since believing have actually gone to hell instead if there's no resurrection. That's Paul's implication. You're still in your sins. You have perished. You have gone into eternal damnation even though you lived believing in this so-called myth of the resurrection if there's no resurrection at all. And so you see the seriousness of the reality of what Paul is talking about. How could there some be in and among you that say there is no resurrection of the dead? Because if there's no resurrection, then we as living and professing Christians are just a deceived and duped group of sad people. In fact, we are fools. Because not only have we lost the heaven to come, but we have lost this heaven as well. We've lost the future heaven because it's only a myth, and we have lost this earthly heaven. Why? Because we have denied ourselves the full fury and the full enjoyment and the full pleasure of all this that we live in because there is no heaven to come and therefore this is the only heaven and so we've denied ourselves the only heaven that there could be if there's no resurrection those are indeed sad sad consequences aren't they that brings us to the portion of scripture that I really want to focus our attention on this morning resurrection that Paul speaks about from the other side. Because in verse 20 to 28, the Apostle Paul goes from the negative reasons to the positive realities. From the negative reasons to the positive realities. And so, by way of contrast to all the negative reasons of the non-resurrection Verse 20, notice, says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. Don't miss that statement. That is the transitional statement from death to life. From foolishness to believe there is no resurrection to reality that believes the reality of the resurrection. Let me just read for us from verse 20 through 28 so that we can get the whole idea in our mind. The Apostle Paul says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since, or by a man came death. By a man also came the resurrection of the dead. 
For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits. After that, those who are Christ at His coming. Then comes the end. When He delivers up the kingdom to the God and Father, when He has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For He has put all things in subjection under His feet. But when He says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that He is accepted who put all things in subjection to Him. And when all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself also will be subjected to the One who subjected all things to Him, so that God may be all in all. Now notice that the Apostle Paul says in verse 20 that Jesus Christ is the firstfruits of those who are asleep. In other words, you cannot say, you cannot just simply say you believe Jesus rose from the dead and mean it, and also have a resurrection that has no actual effect upon those who believe. You understand what I'm saying? You cannot simply go around in your life and say, I believe in the resurrection, and the reality of that resurrection belief have no effect upon you. And you cannot have a resurrection that has no effect upon all who believe upon Jesus Christ. That is what Paul is explaining to us here in verse 20 through 28. So, if in some way you deny by either words or action. By action, I mean how we live. If we deny in either words or actions the physical resurrection of the body, then there are a whole host of negative consequences that are linked to that kind of ideology. We listed them just a minute ago. They're listed for us there in verse 12 through 19. If we deny the resurrection of the body of Christ, then Christ hasn't risen. Then the gospel is useless. Then faith is empty. Then we are all liars. Then we are all still in our sins and still on the road to eternal hell. So just pity us. Pity yourself because who we who believe in the resurrection are simply deceived. but we believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ, don't we? We believe in a bodily risen Lord. We know Christ has risen. That's what Paul says. But now Christ has been raised. We know that, and His resurrection is just the first fruits of a whole harvest of resurrections still to come. of which every true Christian will be a part. 
We hear of, of resurrection truth. We hear of the spiritual reality of the resurrection through the testimonies of Christians who share how God has transformed their life from dead in trespasses and sins to new life in Christ, like we heard this morning. That's the spiritual reality, but there's coming a day of a physical reality. And we will be raised from the dead physically. So Paul says Christ is the first fruits of those who are asleep. So what are the first fruits? What are the first fruits? It's not a term we use or even hear today. So what is it exactly? Well, if we had time, we could go through the entire Old Testament and look at the principle of first fruits. And you would find a whole host of places in which it's spoken about in the history of Israel and first fruits. But one in particular is Leviticus 23. In Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 10, it speaks about what is required at Passover. We just went past what was celebrated as Passover the weekend, Good Friday, the Passover happened the day before that. Before anyone could go out into the harvest fields in Passover, you were required to cut down the first fruits of the crop. Primarily in those days, it would have been barley that they were growing in order that they might make all kinds of different products for them to eat. And you had to bring that first fruit, that first clipping, if you will, from the crops and present it to the priest. If you go to Leviticus chapter 23, you can see that happening in the the working out of that. It was the first part of the crop offered and given to the Lord. It was a thankful, a hopeful, a sacrificial offering to God for all that God had accomplished to bring the rain, to allow the plant to grow, to allow harvest time to come that would have a fruitful harvest. But before the full harvest could be made, the first fruits had to be given to God. So to show your love to God and to show that you believe that God was the one who was sovereign over all of these things, you would take the first part of your crop and rather than keeping it for yourself, rather than bringing it into the household as part of the whole harvest, you would give it to God as an act of faith. You would trust God. Sounds much like what we do today when we bring our offering before the Lord. We are to give our first fruits, our best to the Lord, whether it's monetary items or whether it's our own selves, we give it to the Lord. And the whole point that Paul is making here in 1 Corinthians 15 is that just as the full harvest could never be made until the first fruits was given, so too we will never rise until Christ has risen. See how important it is that Christ has risen from the dead? The first fruits was a, a sign. It was a symbol of the coming harvest. And the resurrection of Christ was real. The resurrection of Christ happened, and it too is a sign of the coming resurrection of not simply the saved, but the resurrection of all unto life believers unto eternal life and unbelievers unto eternal death. That's what Paul is saying. 
In other words, Christ's resurrection has a necessary and actual impact upon every person's future resurrection. Unbelievers today may not celebrate the resurrection at all. They may not even believe in the resurrection, but the reality of Christ being the first fruits of the resurrection is a reality that they, while they don't understand, they will face. Because they are part of a grand harvest that will happen, whereby the wheat will be separated from the tares. In other words, without Christ's resurrection, you and I as Christians have no resurrection and through Christ's resurrection, we are guaranteed to rise. Why? Because the first fruits was part of the entire harvest. The first fruits was part of the entire harvest. I trust you understand this. Christ is the first fruits, but he is still part of the whole. He is not a separate entity outside of the entire harvest. No, he is just the first fruits of the harvest. He's part of the whole. He, he, his res, he's part of a, an entire resurrection harvest. He died and rose to life and became the guarantee for the rest of us who will die and also rise to life. And someone will ask, well, what's the proof of that? How, how can you really prove that? Well, look at verses 21 through 22. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. Paul's referring to physical life. Whereas in Adam all die physically, so also in Christ all shall be made alive spiritually. Through a man came death. Just let that sink upon you for a moment. Our contribution to the divine project of God redeeming people was death. That was our contribution. Death. How? By the agency of Adam, it says here. When Adam sinned in the garden, when Adam chose to disobey God, we all were there in Adam. We were there in Adam. He was our federal head. We were there with Adam, rejecting the command of God to obey. God created Adam and Eve. God gave them commands that they were to follow and obey, duties within the created paradise that they were to carry out, and they disobeyed God. They refused to believe God in what He said. They believed the lie. And all of us were there in the loins of Adam, disobeying God. When Adam sinned, we all sinned. We fell in sin. And therefore, when the curse of death was given to Adam, it was given to us all. How? Through being born of the seed of Adam. We are born sinners. You say, why? Because we are born in Adam and his humanness. We are of the human genome. We are of the created order. We are in Adam. Adam was the beginning. And therefore the death principle, the principle of physical death, and therefore the principle that follows that, which is spiritual, is passed to all of us. 
You want to talk about a deadly virus, let's talk about it. It's called sin. That's the virus that not only will send you physically dead, but also can send you spiritually dead. Romans 5.12 says, Just as through one man sin entered into the world, speaking of Adam, and through and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Where? Where did we all sin? In Adam. We were there. So, verse, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 21 says, For since by a man came death, speaking of Adam, like Romans 5, by a man also came resurrection of the dead. Who was that? Jesus Christ, by His incarnation, the God-man, who came not made of man, but came by the supernatural incarnation, came in perfection, came for a sacrifice, the headship of Jesus Christ, the sinless one. So in the same way that death passes to all, so too physical resurrection passes to all. But there's a caveat. If one is to be raised to eternal life with Christ, there's a caveat. What is that? Notice we must be in Christ. We must be in Christ. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. What is that? We have to be in Christ. And the only way that happens is by faith. Hebrews 11 says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. You can try as you will. You can try as you desire by way of effort and work and, and so-called activities of righteous deeds that you might stack up in your own liking compared to everybody else and try to please God. And yet without faith, it is impossible to please God. Why? Because salvation is by faith alone. We heard it this morning in the testimony, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, and it goes on in verses 9 and 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk and should walk in them. In other words, no faith in Christ, then there is no being in Christ. And if you're not in Christ, the only resurrection that is to come is a resurrection to eternal death. For in Adam all die. So we have to understand something this morning. There isn't a maybe of a resurrection. There is no maybe. There is no middle point. There is no fence in which we can straddle. And maybe if something in us is, is found out to be okay, maybe if God sees in us and finds some kind of favor in who we are, maybe we'll be raised again. No, the resurrection is as sure as the reality of death is sure. And the reality of death is so sure that the reality of sin is sure because death comes by way of sin. Someone might say, I'm not a sinner. Say, really? 
live forever. Go ahead, live forever. The fact of the matter is we all die because we all sin. Listen, will you rise to eternal life or eternal death? That's the question. Just as all are dying, so too all will rise from the dead. The question is, to what will you rise? That's the question. Will you rise to eternal life in Christ or eternal death because you are still of your humanness in sin in Adam? You see, the Bible doesn't offer any other options. Those are the only two options. There is no reincarnation. There is no annihilation. There is no non-existentness. There is only actual resurrection. And since all men will receive a new resurrection body that is imperishable, it's a bodily resurrection unto a new imperishable body. Then the destination of our resurrected self will be determined by our conscious rejection or belief of God's revealed truth concerning Jesus Christ. Will it be heaven or will it be hell? There is no more important an issue in all of life than that issue. So how does all of this resurrection take place? How does it all take place? We are told by the Apostle Paul here in verses 23 and 24. How will the resurrection happen? Okay, pastor, okay, I get it. I know you've been hammering it here. If there is no resurrection, it's foolishness. All these consequences. I see the reality that, okay, there might be this resurrection. Okay, what if I acquiesce to the resurrection and there is this resurrection coming? How is all that going to happen anyway? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us, verse 23 and 24, he says that the resurrection will be in stages. Stages. In other words, although all men will be raised from the dead, it will not happen all at the same time. Notice verse 23, he says, but each in his own order. He's not going about talking about each person in his own particular order, and everybody in the world is going to have their, their own little number, take a ticket at the deli, and you know when your number's called, that, that's when your resurrection happens. No, he's talking about groups, idea of groups here, each group. Uh, the order the word here for order in the original is tagmati in, in the original language. It, it's a military term. It, it's the idea of, of separating soldiers into their squads or into their ranks. When, when I was in the military years ago, they, they used to separate us by squadrons and, and then by flights, they called them in the Air Force. And you would, in big parades, you would have your group that was in this one little area, and then another group would be there, and another group, and then those groups made up a bigger group called a squadron. That's the idea here. So the resurrection is a resurrection order. And here we see that there are three phases within this resurrection. One phase has already happened. Verse 23 says, Christ, the first fruits. 
Christ, the first fruits. That happened three days after Christ died. Christ has risen from the dead. He rose from the grave. And we don't have the time to go into all of it this morning, but I believe with him, Old Testament saints, Old Testament believers were raised too. Why? Because the Bible tells us in Matthew 27, verse 52 and 53, that when Christ raised from the dead, some came out of the tombs after his resurrection. And they believe those were Old Testament saints. Those who had fallen asleep before, as Paul said, since believing. So you have Christ, the first fruits, he rose from the dead with some Old Testament saints as the after the three days he was in the ground. And then verse 23 says, after that, those who are Christ at his coming. Brothers and sisters, that's our resurrection. That's yours and mine who believe upon Jesus Christ today. That's every Christian since Christ has been raised from the dead that day. When does that happen? It happens, it says, at His coming. In other words, at the return of Christ. So the believer's resurrection, yours and mine who believe upon Jesus Christ unto salvation, our resurrection happens at the return of Christ to earth to reign for a thousand years, as it says in the book of Revelation. Then verse 24 says, and then comes the end. Then comes the end. The word come isn't there in the original language. The translators put it there just for flow of reading. So it just says, then the end. Then the end. The end. What is that? That's when everyone else is raised. What end? The end of the culmination of God's redemptive plan. The the end of all God's work that He needed to do in order to save all whom He was going to save by ushering in now a new heaven and a new earth. In other words, this is all the rest who have believed since the coming of Jesus Christ. Millennial kingdom believers, all those who believe during the thousand year reign of Christ and all who have rejected Christ from the beginning of time all the way to the end of the millennial kingdom of Christ. So from the time that God's paradise was infected by sin in the Garden of Eden to the time when sin will be no more. That's the end. All who have rejected Christ will be raised and equipped with an eternal, immortal body that will endure the torture of death forever. Let me say that again. All who have rejected Jesus Christ by faith in Him, who have rejected the gospel, who reject in essence even the resurrection, will be raised with an eternal body, an immortal body, that will be equipped to endure the tortures of death forever. That's the end. Notice what he says in verse 24. Then the end when... He, that is Christ, delivers up the kingdom to God the Father when He has abolished all rule and authority and power. So that's the accomplishment by way of Christ's resurrection. He has abolished that in in reality, in the sense of the spiritual realm, and He will abolish all of that in actuality when He comes. All rule, all authority, all power, because He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. 
The last enemy, of course, that will be abolished is death. Death. Christ will render every power against him completely inoperative. Completely powerless in the end. Let's listen to what Revelation 20, verse 7 through 10 says. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and he will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. So don't think that it's a small group of people. In fact, Jesus said the road is wide and many are they that follow it to destruction. They're like the sand of the seashore. There's so many of them, you can't count them. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. So this is in physical Israel, Jerusalem, the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That torment, beloved, is part of eternal death. John chapter 5, verse 28, we read these words, quote, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto a resurrection of life, and they that have done evil to a resurrection of damnation. So you have the resurrection of Christ. You have the resurrection of the saints. That is in various stages over time because Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, tribulation saints, church age saints, we don't have time to get into all that, but that's all the case. And all that happens before the end, before the time when the rejectors of Christ are raised. Christ is reigning the whole time. Christ is is ruling all of the time. So then in the final end, He can give it all back to the Father so that the Father is glorified in all of it. That's what verse 27 means, that for He, that is God the Father, has put all things in subjection under His feet, that is Christ's feet. But when He says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that He is accepted who put all things in subjection to Him. In other words, God isn't in subjection. God the Father is not in subjection. He put everything in subjection. And when all things are subjected to Christ, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, that God may be all in all. How does that work in the mystery of the Godhead? I can't tell you. That's the goal of it all, though, that those who believe would not fear, that you and I who believe upon Jesus Christ would not fear anything, especially death. We would not fear death. We would not fear death now. We would not fear any death to come. And that God the Father would be glorified through the Son so that God the Father might be all and in all. The resurrection of Christ began when Christ raised from the dead three days after His death on the cross. It began the consummation of everything. Christ is reigning so that He can give it back to the Father. 
So first, Christ has been raised. Then Christ has to come. And then there is all that happens in the end. And all rule and all authority and all powers against Christ are put in submission to Christ, even death itself. Even death itself. He crushes it all. All rule, all power, all authority under His power. Notice verse 27, He put all things under His feet. That's a a term synonymous with subordination. Subordination. Because kings were always elevated in the ancient days. Kings always sat upon a throne and anybody who came into the king was lower than their feet. Their subjects always came below them. And they always bowed down to them, so they were subjected to them. And so Christ, being the King of kings, will put all other powers, including death, in a place of submission. In other words, the entire world, the entire universe, will be completely ruled by the kingship of Jesus Christ. Satan will have no sway anymore. God will allow him to do nothing. So here's the question. This is resurrection truth. This is not myth. This is not stories. These are not oracles passed down like Aesop's fables through ancient days. This is resurrection truth. The question is, which side are you on? That's the question. Which side are you on? In other words, do you believe the resurrection? If so, are you living right now, today, in the circumstances of life in which God has orchestrated around you, are you living this very day as if you do believe in the resurrection? As if you do believe all things are subjected to Christ, even death? Are you being strangled instead by worry and by fear? And if you don't believe in the resurrection, then you don't believe in Jesus Christ, the Savior. Because you cannot believe in the gospel and not believe in the resurrection. So if you don't believe in the resurrection, you do not believe in the gospel, and the gospel is all about Jesus Christ. And if you do not believe in Jesus Christ, then we are here this very day to plead with you, to beg you on behalf of Christ to repent of your sin and believe. Why? Because Jesus Christ died for sins. Paul says it. Notice in chapter 15, verse 3, I delivered to you as of first importance what I received. What? That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And after that, He was seen by many before ascending into heaven. Back verse 6, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom even remain until now. Some have fallen asleep, he says. Some have died. Listen, beloved, the only thing that will save you from eternal death is faith in the resurrected Jesus Christ. It's the only thing. So we plead with you to repent and believe. 
And as for the Christian, what an amazing reality. As for the Christian, what an amazing reality that Christ is the first fruits. And for you and I, there's no need to fear anything because Christ has even abolished death. As Christians, we will be raised to new life. The mortal will be swallowed up with immortality. The perishable will be swallowed up by the imperishable. Together, you and I with Christ before the Father forever and ever and ever without sin. No more sin. The power of death gone. We are here this day. Why? Because we look forward to that day, don't we? We look forward to that day. Resurrection day. It's happened in Christ. And therefore it's guaranteed for each one of us who know Christ. Let's pray together. Father, what a great truth you have uncovered for us this day. Opened our hearts to the reality and truth of the resurrection. Oh Lord, sometimes we live as if it hasn't happened at all. Sometimes we carry ourselves in our life as if the resurrection is just a story, that it isn't a reality. And each and every year we come to this moment, we come to this day that we celebrate the resurrection. And we thank you that it is real, that it isn't a myth. We thank you that what is sown perishable will be raised imperishable. That what is sown in dishonor will be raised in glory. That what is sown in weakness will be raised in power. That our natural bodies, the of this earth bodies will be raised a spiritual body. And so we thank you for that. We thank you for the resurrection. For that the day we will come to you and be with you. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for sharing with us the gospel. Thank you for your mercy and grace. Lord, we plead with you this day. Open the hearts of those here who are rejecting, those who are listening in who may be rejecting. Open their hearts to know you for a life of eternal destruction awaits if they do not. Only you can change their heart. Only you can start their dead heart, make it new by faith in Christ. We plead with you to do that this day. Don't let this be another day of death for them. We know you're a merciful God, but without mercy, none of us would have life in Christ. And so we plead with you to shine your mercy forth upon those who do not know you this day that they might know life. And we'll thank you either way, knowing that you are just in all of your deeds, whether it be redemption or whether it be condemnation, you are just. We trust you for that. We thank you. In our Savior's name, Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, we pray. Amen.